Well, you may have heard the story told of two friends who went together to dinner in a pretty nice restaurant, and, and there they each requested, um, as they made their order, a filet of, of a very uh, nice kind of fish. And after a few minutes, the waiter came back with their order, and, and, and there on, on, on the same platter were two pieces of fish, one large and one small. One was about twice as big as the other portion. And, and one of the men proceeded fairly quickly to, to serve his friend. And he placed a small piece from the platter onto his friend's plate. Well, you certainly do have nerve, his friend exclaimed. What's the matter? The other one said, the one who just put the small piece of fish, are y'all tracking with me, on his friend's plate? Look what you've done, he answered. You've given me the little piece and kept the big one for yourself. Well, how would you have done it? The man asked. His friend said, well, I mean, if I were serving, I would have given you the big piece. And his friend said, well, I've got it, haven't I? Selfishness is quick on the draw, isn't it? And selfishness runs oh so deep in our hearts. Selfishness and worldliness could almost be synonymous, couldn't they? Because the basic characteristic of the world in which we live, the world under the influence of Satan himself, is simple selfishness. Manifested in a myriad of ways, taking on a, a thousand forms, sometimes not even perceived to be selfish, but when you look at the particular manifestation of, of the ways of the world at the root, it's all about me or whoever the person is manifesting the given behavior. David Roper says, worldliness is simply pride and selfishness in disguises. It's being resentful when someone snubs us or patronizes us or shows off. It means smarting under every slight, challenging every word spoken against us, cringing when another is preferred before us. Worldliness is harboring grudges, nursing grievances, and wallowing in self-pity. These are the ways in which we are most like the world. And what James is going to show us in our passage for this morning is that these everyday examples of selfishness or worldliness that we so often just brush off as normal life, normal behavior because we're human, are in actual fact deadly and dangerous, and they must be dealt with, especially in the life of a Christ follower. I want to talk to you this morning about reviving repentance. Reviving repentance. You say, a sermon on repentance, this can't be good, but I want you to get it. It is in the end. It's reviving repentance. Repentance ends up at a good place if it's true Repentance, And here's what I want you to take away as we think about James 3, verses, uh, verse 18 down through verse 10 of chapter 4. Repentance from our selfishness will bring glory to God through our loving unity in the church. Repentance from our selfishness will bring glory to God through our loving unity in the church. Now, where is that all coming from? Well, let's check it out. We were in... James 3, we ended with verse 18 last week, but we need to pick it up again this week because it sets the stage as we turn the corner into chapter 4. James chapter 3, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James summarizes his discussion on the world's wisdom versus heaven's wisdom with this picture. 
peacemakers, sow seeds of peace, and the result is a harvest of righteousness. It's a beautiful thing. When we're living with the wisdom of God, we live as peacemakers, and we sow seeds of peace, and there's this unity among the people of God in the world that is beautiful. It's a, it's a harvest of righteousness. From the Message Translation, verse 18 says, you can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor, being peacemakers who sow in peace and have a harvest of righteousness. But you see, there was a common problem among all the churches that James' letter was written to address. Back in chapter 1, we learned that James is writing to the 12 tribes, to Jewish Christians who were scattered among the nations. Verse, I believe it's verse 1 says of James 1. And among all those Jewish believers, among all those churches scattered among the Gentile nations all around, there was a common problem, and we pick it up in verse 4, verse 1. We just saw in verse 18, this is how it should be. If heaven's wisdom is, is, is dominating our, our lives, this is how it should be. But in reality, sometimes this is how it is. James says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I love verse 6, and I'm so thankful to God that it's there. But he gives more grace. We'll come back to that. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now that passage is rough, is it not? He just gets right up in our business and camps out and stirs the pot. But in the end... We're told if we'll humble ourselves before him, he'll exalt us. Repentance from our selfishness will bring glory to God through our loving unity in the church. That's what these, these 12 verses or so are really all about. I want you to see this morning four realities that will help you understand the main point. Four realities about the worldliness in our own hearts. First of all, notice with me in verses 1 through 3, the symptoms of worldliness. How do you know if there's worldliness in here? If the attitude of selfishness is driving your life, you can look for the symptoms of worldliness in your own life. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this? That your passions, your desires are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. There's two symptoms of worldliness. The first is divisions. You see it there, don't you? Quarrels, fights. Fights. 
You want something that you don't have and you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight, so you quarrel. It doesn't appear that James was addressing a particular congregation with a specific issue going on here. Again, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. But it just seems that James knows that divisions are cyclical in almost every local church, are they not? Are y'all out there? Have you ever been to church before today? If not, you're welcome, we're glad you're here. But if you've been around church, you know divisions in church seem to be cyclical, don't they? It's just a matter of time, usually, before there will be some sort of quarrel or fight going on between some folks in the church. Today, we need to mark it down. James' words here will be true of us. And we need to store this truth up so that we can recognize these symptoms in ourselves when they develop. I praise the Lord. As far as I know, there's nothing major going on with any of us today. Praise the Lord. But tomorrow's another day. We'll see what we wake up to on a Monday, right? And behind and underneath these divisions that are the first symptom of worldliness, behind and underneath these divisions, James says, are secondly, destructive desires. Why do divisions seem cyclical in the local church? It's because of what's going on inside of individuals in the local church. Are you with me? In my heart and yours, one commentator says, public problems, a disrupted fellowship, have private causes, the self-pleasing heart, and it's always in more than one person at the same time. You remember the demonic wisdom we talked about last week? Everybody remember that? That's exactly what's in play here. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, quickly. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast. And deny the truth. Don't say you've got heaven's wisdom. Because such wisdom, he says, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's not wisdom at all. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You see, James has just said that what causes these divisions among us There in verses 1 through 3 is these desires, these passions, this coveting. This wanting what we want when we want it, no matter what. It's the same stuff that that earthly and, and demonic wisdom is made of. It's envy and selfish ambition, right? Now don't miss this. What James is talking about in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 is not some huge display of selfishness and coveting. He's not talking about something you've never seen before, something that's just off the charts, huge and wicked and ugly and big. He's talking about what we consider just an everyday, run-of-the-mill, almost mundane lifestyle of self-seeking. Where it's just all about me on just my own level. I mean, I'm not on a big crusade to spread worldliness all over the place. I'm just living like everybody else in the world. I'm just doing what I do for me. It's just mundane, it's just every day. But his point in this passage is to shake us and wake us up. To the fact that there is no such thing as a mundane and harmless lifestyle of self-seeking and selfishness. There is no such thing. It is, in fact, a deadly, murderous warring with others. Now, do we believe that the people to whom James wrote, scattered all over the then-known world, are we to really take James' words here and, 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 and hear them as literal? In other words, were they actually drawing swords on one another and knifing each other? Were they literally literally killing one another? Murdering is that word is used there. 
one another. Would you take it that way? Are y'all with me? This is yes. This is, we'll try to stay simple in 2017. This is yes and this is no. No, it's a figure of speech. He's using the picture of war, these images from, and this language from warfare and wartime to shock his readers. To wake up the church and, 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 and shout at a, in a loud voice, when you live for you, it's not innocent, it's not mundane, it's not run-of-the-mill, it's not everyday, it's not normal. For followers of Christ, you are declaring war on one another and openly against God. Your Father who saved you. It's a deadly, murderous warring with others. And it immediately affects our relationship to God. And did you notice our prayer life in particular? What did James say there? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. This is all within reference to prayer because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's the deal. God will never say yes to self-centered, self-serving requests that will further our selfish, godless pleasures. And when we're living in this place of selfishness, we don't do a lot of praying, period, do we? When I'm living for me, I'm not interested in talking to God. Right? Because I'm kind of living like I'm God. Right? Don't need Him. Don't want to be troubled with His ways that kind of mess up cramp my style and, and all the, the, the me stuff I got going on. I mean, I know what He's going to say. So we just don't talk. It's simple. Or if I do, then I ask Him to baptize and bless and, and you know, sprinkle holy water all over my selfish Self-serving plans. Y'all all right? You ever prayed that way? Remember the signs. Yes. There's only, this one has to be yes. And so, sometimes we pray when we're living selfishly. But it's a waste because it's selfish, pleasure-seeking. God is a genie in a bottle who we hope will give us our three wishes kind of praying. God is not a genie in a bottle. And James wants us to understand when we have selfishness driving our lives, we don't know how to pray. And we don't pray. You see, only a prayer of repentance will get us reconnected to our Father. These are the symptoms of worldliness. How do you know if worldliness is, 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 is driving you, if you're living according to selfishness? Look, are there divisions? Look at your relationships. Are there divisions between you and the other person? And, and, and then dig deeper. See how your prayer life is. Are you praying? And what are you praying for? You're praying for, for God just to bless you and make, make you know, just, just, to, just, to, just to bless all your plans and, and just make you happier being selfish? Is that what you're praying for? Look at your prayer life. And then go deeper into your heart and see, is there envy and selfish ambition there? Those are the symptoms of worldliness. But I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5, James goes on to his straightforward, clear-as-a-bell diagnosis of worldliness. He just... He nails it. In verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of, God, of, of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And so in his, in his diagnosis of worldliness, James uses two pictures here. He paints two pictures to communicate this idea of, 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 of basically him looking at his readers and saying, here's the deal, you're worldly. He, he says it in two ways. One, he says, you're adulterers and adulteresses. You're an adulterous people. 
Now, there's no indication that these folks were committing adultery on a sexual level with other humans. But what's clear is that every time we love the world by living for ourselves and letting our own desires, our own passions for pleasure rule us, we are sleeping around on our God and Savior. That's what James is saying. From the message translation, these these two verses would go like this. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that He's a fiercely jealous lover. And what He gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. That's the heart of your God. And that's the diagnosis of worldliness. It's adultery toward God our Savior. Over in 1 John chapter 2, John addresses the same issue, this issue of worldliness there in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the Father, listen, the love, or loves the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And you know, if you reduce down the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, does it all not reduce down to selfishness? The lust of the flesh. You want your sexual or sensual or bodily pleasures fulfilled for you. The lust of the eyes. You want what somebody else has. You covet. You're greedy. Why? Because you want stuff for you. Or position and power for you. It's all about you. Or the boastful pride of life. You want to be well thought of and well perceived. You want to be a person of position and power in this world so that people will praise you. Why? Because your life is all about you. And, and, and John says, this stuff doesn't come from God. It's not from the Father. And if you say you love the Father, but you have all this stuff going on inside, you can't claim to love the Father. Those two loves can't occupy the same heart at the same time. Ezekiel chapter 16. I want to encourage you to take time later today to go back and read the entirety of Ezekiel 16. It's perhaps the most explicit description of, of, of the spiritual adultery of the people of Israel against their God in the Old Testament. And it's certainly an apt carryover in, 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 in describing the spiritual adultery of the church of Jesus Christ today. I just want to read three verses from that, this chapter because some of them you couldn't handle me reading out loud, frankly. They are explicit. God is looking at his people and describing how grossly adulterous they are being. Spiritually. Three verses that describe our adultery. When we love and please ourselves instead of our Savior God. Ezekiel 16 verses 32 to 34. You adulterous wife, God says to his people. You prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts. That's the way it works, right? You pay a prostitute. But you, he says of Israel, give give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. That's God talking to his people and saying, you're you're a prostitute among prostitutes. You don't even have to be paid. You'll pay for the adultery. And you know, if that was true of the people of Israel who looked forward to the cross and resurrection of Messiah Jesus, how much more true is it it of us? What do we know of the love and mercy and grace of God that they didn't know? 
volumes. We got the whole picture. We've seen it described in living color. We, we know all the sufferings of our Savior. We know all the, just the, the horrific nature and atrocities of crucifixion that Jesus endured for us. We know that he was three days dead. And we know that he gloriously rose from the dead in victory over it all. We know that he's alive today. They didn't know all that. They at least had the excuse of an incomplete knowledge of the gospel to come. And yet God was pretty doggone plain about their adultery. Folks, I just want you to understand, those words I just read in, in the rest of Ezekiel 16, there are more true of me than they were of the Israelites. I'm a grosser adulterer toward God when I run off into sin than they were because I have the fullness of the gospel on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection. And I live today with the indwelling spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead and who can give me power to follow Jesus. Has James got your attention yet? He's got mine. Notice the heart of your God back in James 4, verse 5. Couched in the language of a jealous lover, a broken-hearted lover. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's jealous for us. He proved his love to us on the cross and in the resurrection. And he's jealous for my heart. He wants your heart. At the end of Ezekiel 16, it's amazing. God, after he absolutely burned, I mean just scathingly, indicts them for their adultery. At the end, he provides atonement for his wife. For the nation of Israel. He gives forgiveness to his adulterous people and he brings them back. And he'll do it for you, do it for me through reviving repentance. The book of Hosea, where we're to go spend some time there in the Old Testament, describes God's jealous and long suffering love toward Israel and by application toward us, the church, and his often unfaithful people. You remember the story God told his prophet Hosea, you got to go marry. A prostitute. And he married her and he loved her. And, and, and then Gomer would leave, ha- leave home and go off to the far country and she'd do the kind of stuff Ezekiel 16 talked about. Didn't even have to be paid. She'd just go be unfaithful to Hosea because it's just what she did. It's how she was. And God would say, go get her and bring her home, Hosea, and love her. Love her like she never left, Hosea. Hosea, you're to be a picture after you've done this for a while. You're to be a picture and you're to stand up and tell Israel, what I'm living is you and God. And Gomer's us as the people of Israel. And and I'm representing in the story God. And and just as, as awful as it's been for me with Gomer, so unfaithful, so heartbreaking it's been for God with you. Over and over, Hosea pursued his prostitute wife and and he brought her back home and he loved her. And so does God, which we'll see more in a few minutes. So worldliness is adultery toward God our Savior, but it's also enmity against God there in verse 4. He says, do you not know That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, when we choose to live according to the wisdom of the world in jealousy and selfish ambition for our own worldly pleasures, we make ourselves enemies of God. That is serious. We declare war on our Father, we declare war on our Savior. 
only fools draw battle lines against Almighty God and declare war against Him. But when we choose to live for ourselves, committing to self-pleasing above all things, that is exactly what we're doing, James says. And make no mistake, God doesn't stroke our self-pleasing hearts. He, as the text says, opposes the proud. How many of you want God on your side? Okay, this is another sign. This means yes, you can do this. I've got two for you this morning. You can do this or you can raise your hand. You want God on your side, don't you? Why do I choose knowingly to pursue my self-satisfaction then? Because James says, when I do, I make God my enemy. I get on the other side of the line from God. How stupid can I be? You don't want to line up against God. How many of you saw the movie The Blind Side? And I love the part when it finally clicks for him on the football field and that dude that had been just going all around him and and beating him at every point, the guy is exhausted because he he blocks him all the way into the end zone and across the fence. I mean, that's, that's you and God. There ain't no winning that war. You can't block that. James cries out, have you lost your minds? Wake up. Quit downplaying and making light of the way you're living, James says. It's no less than adultery toward your Savior and playing out war against Almighty God. The diagnosis of worldliness. That's what it is. That's what worldliness is. Two pictures, adultery and war both against a holy and gracious and loving God. But I'm so thankful for the next verse where James gives us the cure for worldliness. And there's only one. There's not many cures for worldliness. There's one cure. You ready? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. There's the cure. There's the only cure. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Talked about that just a second ago. But gives grace to who? Who does he give this grace to? It says he gives even more grace. Even when we live as spiritual adulterers and adulterers, even when we set ourselves up as enemies against God in our self-seeking lives, even then he gives more grace. But who does he give it to? To the humble. I like Moitier says, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give if we will be. Reviving repentance. Repentance is the behavior of humble people, and if you repent, he will revive. You see, you and I cannot just change ourselves. You can't respond to the message thus far and say, Great day, I had no idea my selfishness was that serious. I didn't understand that God saw it as spiritual adultery toward him. I didn't get that when I live for me, it's making war against the God who saved me. I'm just going to fix this. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm not going to live this way anymore. You just can't do that. You're not able. I can't change me. There's only one cure for worldliness, and it's the statement, He gives more grace. It's the grace of God. We can't just turn off our self-seeking because we come to this realization that living as God's enemy is a bad idea. We must have God's power-giving grace. We must have it. And according to this verse, God will pour out His grace to those who humbly admit their need for Him. 
in dealing with their own selfish hearts. I was thinking about Romans 8 a while ago as we were singing, and it's not going to be on the screen, but I was thinking about Romans 8. What does it say about the love of God? We should probably just look there. Romans chapter 8, flip back there. There's only one cure for worldliness, and it's the grace of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from His grace. And even when we're in a distant country living like a spiritual prostitute against him for our selfishness. He, like Hosea, still loves us. And he still wants to bring us home. He still wants things to be made right. You may say today, well, Chad, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a place of sin today as a Christian where I just, I can't break free. No, you can't break free. But he gives more grace. And it's not just the grace of forgiveness. It's power. Grace that is power to help you overcome sin. It's the stuff of Romans 8, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all? Things. The picture being, if he would send Jesus to die on the cross, let me tell you something, he'll send power through his Holy Spirit to help you overcome that sin. He'll he'll, he'll give power through the indwelling Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you. He'll give you power to say no and walk away, break the chains, and move on. He'll do that for you because he gives more grace. That's the cure for worldliness. But I want you to understand something. We then must do something with the grace that he gives us. And that leads us to the last point. The prescription for worldliness. Verses 7 through 10. He's just said in verse 6, God gives more grace. He, he, he gives grace to the humble. Now, what do the humble do with that grace? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify you hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me tell you something. When you read verse 6 and you see the cure for worldliness, man, we ought to get busy about taking the prescription of worldliness and putting it into practice. The grace of God, that God would give more grace to me when I live like a spiritual adulterer against God Almighty, it ought to make me run in the path of obedience. Run to the path of repentance and change. It's not enough to know God will give you more grace to overcome selfishness and quit loving yourself more than you love God like the rest of the Christless world around us. You and I must take God's grace and let it change the way we behave. We must take God's grace and obey even these commands that he gives us here in verses 7 through 10. There's 11, and we're going to hit them real quick. 11 commands to obey, to remedy worldliness. Here's the prescription. Submit to God. Surrender to the sovereign one. Start at that simple place of saying, God, you're God and I'm not. Life's not about me. I don't call the shots. You're the one in charge and you're the one that saved me. You surrender. You submit to God. Secondly, when you do that, you simultaneously resist the devil. You take a stand. You, you, you tell Satan, you're not playing his games anymore. And the Bible says the devil will flee from you. It's the stuff of Ephesians 
6, 10 through 13. You see, Satan is a defeated foe. You don't have to let him win and overcome you with his temptations. He's a defeated foe. That's why in Ephesians 6 it says this, Be strong in the Lord. You don't have the cure. You can't be the cure for your own worldliness. It's the grace of God. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Don't try to stand against the devil on your own. Paul says you better suit up with God's power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Second time he said that. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, you've got to be able to stand the attacks of the enemy, the attacks of your own flesh, the attacks of this world around us. And the only way you can stand is if you stand the power of the living God, the power of the gospel that he goes on to unpack and the rest of chapter 6 in Ephesians. Take a look at it later. You're to submit to God, you're to resist the devil. Thirdly, it says, come near to God and he will draw near to you. We just saw there in Ephesians 6, that's the key. The nearness of God, the armor of God, standing strong in his strength. We've got to go to him for the power we need. And when we do, he'll be there. And then he says, wash your hands you sinners. His focus in this, in this phrase is, and this command is, is on our impure behavior. Change the way you're behaving. Change the way you're living. It's focused on, on, on our outward impure behavior. By the grace he gives you, change it. Stop it. Start it. Whatever needs to change. And then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded What's he focusing on there? He's saying, look, you've got to not just change the outside, you've got to change the inside. By my grace, by my power, by my strength, you've got to change the inside. You've got to purify your hearts, you double-minded. You've got you to work on your two-faced heart. And you've got to make it single. Not trying to love the world and God at the same time. Not saying I want to be just like everybody around me and, 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 and follow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And at the same time, I want to be a good Christian. He, he says you've got to get over that double-mindedness, that two-facedness. You can't, you can't live two-faced. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has a character named Mr. Facing Both Ways. You ever tried that? I'll mess you up. You'll need a chiropractor of a divine sort. You can't face both ways. James says, purify your hearts, get get over your two-faced perspective on life and get single in your view. Now, the next five commands can be summed up like this. Completely and radically change your thinking and your attitude about your self-serving ways. Completely and radically. This is is no minor adjustment. This is a major realignment in here. One writer very wisely says to repent is to accuse and condemn ourselves, to charge upon ourselves the desert of hell, to take part with God against ourselves and to justify him in all that he does against us. To repent is to be ashamed and confounded for our sins. To repent is to have them ever in our eyes and at all times upon our hearts that we may be daily sorrowful for them. To repent is to to part with our right hands and eyes, as Jesus said, that it That is, with those pleasurable sins which have been as dear to us as our lives, so as never to have to do with them again. To repent is to hate them, so as to destroy them, as things which by nature we are wholly inclined to do. For we naturally love and think well of ourselves, hide our deformities, lessen and excuse our faults, indulge ourselves in the things that please us, and are mad, gone crazy upon our lusts, and follow them, though to our own destruction. Do you know what repentance means? Do you live in repentance? You know what the the lifestyle of the Christian should be? A daily and ongoing repentance that results in a fresh celebration of the grace of God in the gospel, in the love and the mercy of Jesus, so that when you wake up tomorrow or come along to the next place of of faltering and sin, you repent again, and it's just a cycle. We ought to live in repentance. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Because it's reviving repentance. Repentance is a gift. The fact that you can get, get back right with God when you're wrong with God is a gift. 
that we can repent and be revived. And so he says, grieve, mourn, well. Three words mean basically the same thing. That's how we should be toward our sin. When was the last time you cried over the wickedness of your own selfishness? When is the last time I literally mourned my own self-pleasing that will eventually bring division in relationships with others and is no less than cheating on Jesus and declaring war with my God? When was it? James says, mourn, grieve, and wail. And then he says, and change laughter into mourning and change joy to gloom. Quit cackling about how you're living and cry. John MacArthur says the word laughter here is used only here in the New Testament. It's a word that isn't used very often. It indicates the leisurely laughter of men indulging in their desires and pleasures. It's the laughter of fools who reject God. It's the silly laughter of a pleasure-loving gang of people indulging themselves up to their proverbial ears in the things of the world. It pictures people who give no thought to God, no thought to life, no thought to death, sin, judgment, and holiness. And James says, change your laughter. Change it into mourning. Change your joy, your, your giddy party spirit. Change it to mourning over all that, that dishonors the Christ who died for you. And then the summary of all the above can be boiled down to that last command. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And if you ever wonder what it means to humble yourselves before the Lord, then just go back and look at the Ten Commands prior to it in this passage. That's what it means. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. The perfect illustration of all this is the prodigal. He came home. He drew near. The father drew near to him. He had cleansed his life. He left the pig slop in his past. He had left the wild living. He had left the drunken orgies. He'd come back. He'd put that all behind him. He'd done all the things that James says to do. He'd mourned over his sin. He'd resisted the devil and he had surrendered his heart. To God, and now he submits to his father. He says, Make me a servant. I, I turn my back on my former manner of life. I draw near to you. You draw near to me. I've cleansed the outside. I want to cleanse the inside. I'm sad. I'm broken. I'm afflicted. I'm mourning. I'm weeping. God, I'm humble before you, Father. And what did that father say in the prodigal, parable of the prodigal? What did he say to the son? Did he say, Boy, it's about time? Now, buddy, you get out to the woodshed, you're going to get it. Is that what the father said? I love that story. Don't forget what happened before they even started talking. The father got up and looked, and he saw a speck getting bigger and bigger. The closer he got, the more closer to the edge of the porch daddy got. And when he knew it was his boy, he just grabbed his skirt up, his robe up, and ran for his son. And then when his boy gets about three-fourths of the way through his prepared speech, and all he's going to tell daddy, so he might just maybe get back in the house and get in good standing with daddy, his daddy interrupts him. And he says, kill the fatted calf, put a ring on his finger, get the best robe, we're having a party. My boy's come home. What was lost has now been found. Let's celebrate. Folks, that's grace. That's what reviving repentance looks like when I do it. That's what reviving repentance can be in your life as a believer today, as a Christian, as a Christ follower today. You can get it all back right with your daddy. 
He gives more grace, greater grace than we can even imagine. Grace greater than all of our sin. You see, repentance from our selfishness will bring glory to God through our loving unity in the church. There is grace that is stronger than my selfishness and that will keep you in sweet fellowship with your Father and keep us from dishonoring the one who died to free us from ourselves. And church together, if we're right on that individual level with God, if we're, if we're living in that pattern of reviving repentance, church, we can then live together with a God-honoring, Christ-exalting peace and righteousness and unity that shines brightly before an ever-watching world who needs to know our Savior. We can. But perhaps you're here today and, and you simply don't know God. You don't have a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus and you've been living for no one but yourself. We have all been where you are. And yet this morning you've come to realize through the word of God that just how dangerous a position you're in. Your soul before a holy God and the judge of all mankind. You are living as an enemy of holy and righteous God. Today the call is clear for you. Repent. Turn away from your self-serving, your self-living, and draw near to the God, hear me, to the God who gives grace upon grace upon grace. And he proved it through the death of his own son, his son given on the cross for you, for you. He's made a way of forgiveness and power over your own self-serving heart. And if you'll come to him, if you'll just draw near to Jesus today, he'll draw near to you. If you'll call out to him, the Bible says he will save you. Your sins will be forgiven and you'll be made right with God. You will be a child of the king. And you can begin a life today that is radically different from the world around you. A life that shines like a light on a hill and shows people the mercy and goodness and beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, we pray together.